What is up, Bitcoiners? I am sitting here with my boy, Bran BTC, and we just had a fantastic conversation with Pierre Richard, or I should just say, Bran had a fantastic conversation with Pierre Richard. Um, I did not sit in on this uh, on this quick chat, but uh, Bran and Pierre talked about the Stable Act. Pierre let it all off his chest. I'll let you uh, jump into what you thought of the conversation, but uh, I really thought it was a, a fantastic take on uh, kind of a lot of commotion on Twitter. What's up, everybody? It's Brand BTC. Yeah, just had a great convo. Really a great listen to Pierre because he just went. I mean, he had so much insight. So he brought really just a, a whole new perspective on this stable act and what it kind of how it fits in kind of our societal conversation. And so, you know, we talked historically. We talked about, you know, what is our right as a government, as a people, in terms of who issues money. I mean, we really dove into some of the, the minutia of uh, what this means for us as human beings. Uh, and that, I think that's the conversation that was kind of left out when we were just all focused on uh, a couple people tweeting about this article uh, or this bill, is we didn't think about, you know, where should we put our foot down and what is it that we should be fighting for? And so I thought it was a great conversation. And I guess just to take a quick step back before we get into the interview, um, Pierre and a lot of Bitcoiners have been responding to a bill called the Stable Act, which is intended or, or uh, on paper intended to regulate stablecoin issuance. But um, under the cover, you know, under the hood, it was a very, very broad bill. And the people who wrote the bill, you know, kind of going on Twitter defending themselves really demonstrated that they thought that it had broad reaching powers and uh, and were willing to, you know, push those broad reaching powers in order to enforce the concept that they're trying to, um, you know, create with the bill. Um, I mean, did I did I kind of give that background, do that justice? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, the biggest point of this really is that the bill is so broad no one really knows exactly how it would look like if it were to be put into law. I mean, it could do anything from require every single entity that operates in some sort of uh, non-bank, non-dollar denominated uh, asset, but like that's tied to the dollar. So, you know, think your Venmo balance, you know, would that apply to them? Maybe, maybe not. Would it apply to PayPal? Maybe, maybe not. You know, there are so many aspects of it that are just unclear. And I think that's really what we tried to, to uh, explain in this, in this show is that, you know, this bill was in a lot of ways like a cannon shot. I mean, it was very broad. It was not highly targeted, uh, but it, it has wide ranging impact. And I think that that's just, uh, it's crazy to think that such a, uh, incredibly, you know, consequential bill could be put forward in with such impunity. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of is the impunity that I think got Pierre really worked up. Um, before we get into the actual show, let me just give a quick show to our sponsors. It's Level. Level is a new Bitcoin banking service. It's not an exchange where it's designed like a brokerage. It is a Bitcoin first and native bank. Um, so you can put your paycheck in there. They're not there yet, but they want to get to the point where you could be making money in fiat and depositing it into your FDIC insured level bank, uh, bank account and turning whatever percentage of that every single month into 
cold hard BTC. So you could get be get paid in Bitcoin if you want to with Level. That's LVL.co. They are backed by Jimmy Song, uh, Willie Wu, Anthony Papiano, and several others, and they're really trying to make another take on Bitcoin banking. Uh, so check them out if this sounds exciting to you. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, as these regulators try to stamp down on innovation, companies, businesses, projects are innovating with Bitcoin endlessly. And uh, we'll see, you know, we'll see who has the upper hand. Uh, and with no, without further ado, let's just get right into the podcast with Pierre and Bran BTC. Excited to chat about the Stable Act. Uh, this has been probably dominating a lot of people's mind share recently uh, after it came out. I guess it was, what, a week and a half ago now? Two weeks? I don't know how long ago it was. Yeah, a short while ago. But yeah, I agree. Um, it's uh, been uh, preoccupying a lot of people. Um, now, obviously, Bitcoin has a new cycle, right? And who would understand the Bitcoin news cycle better than Bitcoin magazine? Um, and um, this this one's, this story seems to be sticking around. And I think that uh, it's because the authors of it are out there on Twitter, um, you know, uh, from my perspective, uh, digging themselves into a hole. Um, from their perspective, they are, uh, you know, highlighting why they feel they're justified in proposing this legislation and why this legislation, in their eyes, um, you know, is is for the common good. I, I actually think that it's really uh, great that in 2020 we're getting this level of transparency, right? Where we're able to interact directly on Twitter with, a, you know, the authors of a bill and be able to engage with them in in the public square and and get up on our soapbox. And uh, that's that's to Jack Dorsey's credit, right? Criticism of Twitter abounds. Um, nevertheless, Twitter has emerged as a fairly efficient uh, clearinghouse of human communication. Um, we're, we're able to, uh, you know, be able to disseminate information globally from around the world fairly quickly and um, engage in the marketplace of ideas, right? Uh, put forth arguments uh, in favor of policies or against policies, um, and, and, and do so in a really democratic manner. Um, it's, it's really amazing what Jack Dorsey has built. Twitter's become a necessary tool, especially for us as a media company to be able to, you know, just reach out to people and, and interact, uh, without having such a high barrier to entry, like, you know, having to dig around, find contact info, all that kind of stuff. So a hundred percent agree, but, uh, uh, let's, let's talk then about this stable act and, and kind of could you tell us, walk us through kind of what does this thing do? What is it for? What does it mean? Really what we should look at, in my view, is uh, this stable act in the context of um, monetary reform, right? This is, this is a monetary reform act. Um, it's not the first one that's been proposed. In terms of the American experiment uh, of self-governance, um, there's a rich history of um, monetary events and cycles throughout uh, American history and, and also kind of um, government defaulting on its obligations, um, uh, to put it bluntly, in the sense that if we, if we go back to the first Coinage Act, um, well, I, so I should mention, uh, you know, the, the reason that this bill is in front of us at all or has been proposed in, in the House of Representatives is because 
um, the federal government in the Constitution, it says that Congress um, has broad authority with regards to coinage, right? So let's keep in mind, uh, you know, when, when the Constitution was written, you know, people talked about coinage. Um, and so it's a little old-timey, but, you know, they're talking about money. Um, and Congress uh, can just regulate money. That's it, it, it's a very broad provision in the Constitution. It reflects the ideology of the time, um, which is that money is a, a sovereign matter. Uh, it's not uh, one of individual rights, you know, where, oh, anyone can just do whatever they want with, with money. And we could talk about, you know, history of coinage before the uh, U.S. Constitution and, and going back, you know, before. But I also, I, you know, I don't want to lose the focus that we're working towards um, uh, an analysis of this bill that's being proposed, which is that essentially governments defaulted on gold and silver. Although in the United States, it, they defaulted on silver and then gold. Um, the U.S. dollar started out as an amount of silver, um, not of gold. Um, so, you know, if, if the government was actually, uh, honest, they, they, we would still be on silver. Um, and the reasons for defaulting, right. Uh, it's this long series that finally ended with Nixon, um, you know, severing all ties to gold, um, in 1971. Um, this, this really was about politics. It wasn't about good public policy. It, it wasn't about, uh, what is best for the common good? Um, it was about political expedience and and kind of the uh, fiscal problems that government ran into, um, and and the consequences of its bad monetary policies in the past. Really, what were the problem with uh, severing the link between fiat currencies and gold or silver? At that point, you're just saying that all money is debt, right? Because um, the dollar is just a liability that is issued by the Federal Reserve. In a free society, um, any entity is allowed to issue liabilities uh, on whatever terms are accepted by the counterparty, right? The, the, the party on the other side of the liability who, you know, who sees this as an asset. And so there is um, kind of a natural right to tell your neighbor I owe you $1 on demand. You know, you can go come ask me for $1 at any time. Um, you know, it, it would, I, I, I think it would be seen as a violation of freedom of speech for the government to say that that is a regulated banking activity and that person uh, needs to go to prison. And yet um, that's the framework that the authors of this uh, proposed bill have, have established is that, Anyone who says, you know, hey, a, a dollar payable on demand, you know, here's the liability I'm issuing. Anyone who utters those words or, you know, anything that could be interpreted in those words, um, they are performing a regulated banking activity and, and, and all of that that entails, right? Which, um, you know, it's the, the authors of the bill, they see it as a way of preventing counterfeiting. Um, and the reason that they see these liabilities as counterfeiting is because uh, there's not actually any real money anymore, right? There's no gold or silver. So um, really, it's just it, everyone is just creating liabilities. Um, and 
you know, it used to be that counterfeiting was was about the actual coins, right? Of saying, hey, you said there was silver, but there's no silver. That was counterfeiting uh, back back in the day. Um, but today, um, counterfeiting, uh, because money has been dematerialized, counterfeiting today is free speech. And uh, so at this point, um, this, this didn't really become self-evident until uh, we actually saw uh, digital technology that, that was good at um, solving the problem of counterfeiting, right, of cryptography. Um, and governments, so I don't know, I, I, could, I could stop here because I could, or I could just go on infinitely, but um, yeah. Well, I think that's really interesting. And, you know, it's, it's a very broad lens that you're looking at this through. And that, that brings like a really interesting perspective that I feel like too many of us are kind of focused just on what does this bill say and not as much on, you know, why was this bill purported to have been written? The, 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 the purpose of this bill is to reestablish the government's monopoly on USD, right? Um, and uh, the, the reason they have to reestablish that is, is indeed because um, the, the people have freedom of speech. So whenever people start saying, hey, you know, I've got uh, USD here payable on demand, um, they start calling it shadow banking, right? And so um, anytime that there's good liquidity, uh, they immediately think it's shadow banking. Um, and to them, the reason that they want to stamp it out is because they want to concentrate the power of the state. They want to be able to have full control over monetary policy, not partial control or indirect control via just interest rates. They're, they're, they're very unsatisfied with their current toolkit, the Keynesians. They, they, they've got uh, interest rates, okay, so get, get them negative, whatever. Uh, they've got uh, QE, so they've they've bought all the treasuries. They've they've turned the treasury market into, you know, a a, a real, <laughs> you know, treasuries today are cash, right? Treasuries are USD today. Um, so treasuries have been fully monetized. The stock market, I think, has been partially monetized. Uh, you know, by writing the uh, the puts, um, the implicit puts, the moral hazard, uh, and then also the rest of the debt markets, right? And so, um, in any case. Um, there's lots of people creating lots of stores of value and it really is about, they let the genie out of the bottle, right? They're, they're the ones who decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to write a book that says there's an infinite amount of money, right? Mm-hmm. They, they wrote that in, uh, I think Stephanie Kelton's book, she wrote that in there. Yeah, um, well, we're both laughing here because like, it's so clear and obvious, like this is the end goal, right? Is what yeah. you're saying right here. So then it's like, all right, well, so why is it a problem when normal people create USD, right? If there's an infinite amount of USD and, and so it's just a measuring stick, right? All we're talking about is, is people just measuring value between each other, right? Uh, in peer-to-peer, you know, uh, whatever. It's not so much that Stephanie Kelton thinks that there's an infinite amount of USD. She thinks that the, the government has the right and equilibrium or optimal uh you know arrangement like it is best for the economy if the government can create as much money or as little money as it wants to but it is bad for the economy if it's anyone else 
if it's anyone else, then it's a problem and they need to be controlled by the government uh, because ultimately only politicians should be allowed to benefit from seniorage of, hey, we're just going to print more money now. And so we want to, the politicians, they want that money to have value. They want it to be scarce, right? They want a high stock to flow ratio uh, for fiat. Um, the problem is that they fall into the temptation, right? They, they end up uh, just uh, printing more. And, and also, interestingly, in a lot of modern economies, the commercial banking system is another way by which the government uh, emits money. Right, whether that commercial banking system is owned by the government or if it's privately owned, uh, both systems have existed, and uh, it's you know it's a, it's a, whenever you know banks lend out fiat, they're creating money. Um, it's and and the MMT people agree with this, and so really the system they want is that anyone who wants to emit money has to become a bank, so that they are an extension of the state. Now, what what does that give them? Right, one would ask, what you know, what's the purpose of this crazy authoritarianism? Uh, how, how do they benefit from this? They benefit from this because that allows them to inflate more, right? Because they're able to put very draconian capital controls, currency controls um, on all of these uh, financial assets. Uh, they're able to, in a finely tuned manner, um, alienate people from their money, right? Alienate people from their assets uh, and, and, and steal. And we actually saw this just happen in Argentina. In Argentina, they imposed a wealth tax and they said, hey, if you have more than this, you know, in your bank account, we're going to take it. And that happened in Cyprus too. Um, and so ultimately, they want all of the money to be in their walled garden so that at the drop of a hat, they can go and take all of the money from everyone if that is what is politically expedient. Right. Um, and that does feel like the end game. Yeah, that's totalitarian. Right. And so uh, free people have a moral responsibility to push back against this. Um, and I actually uh, I have a lot of uh, hope and faith that, um, you know, there everyone in the United States, especially. But I know that abroad as well, there's a broad coalition of centrists, classical liberals, um, even I would argue most progressives um, should should find what I'm describing to be rather repulsive. Um, and I think that they do. And I think that the position of MMT, the only it's 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 only a position that's held by a handful of people in the world. And they just happen to have a megaphone on Twitter and be able to spew their BS and make legal threats against other people, um, you know, without any repercussions for themselves, without attaching any liability to their uh, threats of state-sponsored violence against people, um, they're able to propose bills like this. Um, and so I, th I think that this bill ultimately won't pass uh, the House of Representatives because Democrats don't want to be associated with financial fascism. It's not a good look, right? Um, and I think that Republicans... Um, if anything, they're, they're sympathetic to the argument that too much USD has been printed and it's been to the benefit of uh, government and at the expense of savers. And so, um, I, I th it, but I also think that a lot of people, um, a, a lot of Democrats and a lot of um, progressives and liberals, they also see that this is about freedom, which I think is a bipartisan value in the United States. I think that both sides say that they stand for freedom, right? That's, um, they have different conceptualizations of how that applies in different scenarios. 
in this scenario, it's rather clear, right? Where you have someone essentially arguing for, um, you know, uh, abolishing the First Amendment, abolishing free speech, um, and establishing a, a surveillance society that uh, is really to the detriment of everyone, uh, ultimately, because, you know, okay, we're, we're happy that uh, President Biden is in office uh, next year, maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not like that means Trump can't get elected in four years again for a second term, you know. So do we want to give him a turnkey authoritarian financial system that would allow him to finance, um, you know, creating a military dictatorship in the United States? Um, no, I think that we should go in the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, two things that you mentioned that I just wanted to add and maybe clarify is one, you know, when we talk about what this bill does, uh, it forces stablecoin issuers to become a bank, but not just a bank, a national bank. They so have that's, to... that's one interpretation of the um, act, uh-huh. of the proposed bill. Um, my interpretation of it, and, you know, I'm not a Supreme Court justice, but um, I, I feel like I've taken, I, I've taken uh, a couple of law classes in college, so that's the extent of my, but I kind of just read it as a layperson, right? And my interpretation of it was that um, it's extremely broad. Because basically, they can define anything to be um, what, what, what they, they consider to be a payment system. And that's the wording in there is payment system, right? It, it, they say it can be a government currency or it can be a money with a payment system. And so with that very broad definition, any reasonable judge could look at that bill and say, well, yeah, it applies to Bitcoin. And so what does that mean in practice? That means that um, running a Bitcoin full node is a regulated banking activity. And so under federal law, uh, what should happen is that, um, you know, officers armed with assault rifles should blow down your front door, shoot your dog, and seize your Bitcoin node, right? That's what that law um, could be reasonably interpreted as, 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 uh, as, as, as written. Um, and this and, is what you were going back and forth with uh, Rohan on Twitter about a little bit, right? Yeah. He doesn't want to respond to that because he knows that um, I'm just calling out his Trojan horse. I'm just pointing out, hey, there's like a massive effing army inside of that horse. Let's light it on fire. Let's burn it at the gate, right? And um, let's punish these people. Um, and so my stance now is that what we need is to pass a constitutional amendment um, that uh, protects Bitcoin. And, um, you know, we can debate about how it should be worded, but um, if, if people like Rohan think that they can go on Twitter and threaten us, I, I do think that we should uh, have a cogent response um, so that uh, we can really make sure that going forward, their threats are hollow, right? That we know that they're just not going to win because this is a um, constitutionally protected right that is specifically enumerated. Um, and that way we can go about living uh, in peace and tranquility. Now, 
they're trying to prop up their shit coin, right? The USD, they just want to print more of it. They want higher inflation. I get it. I get it. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that they can just start violating human rights to, to make that happen, right? Um, we, we all want our investments to do well, whether it's USD or Bitcoin. I'm not out there pointing a gun at people, telling people to buy Bitcoin. I would never do that. I really would never do that. And it's disappointing that Rohan would do that. Yeah, totally. And, you know, one thing that that strikes me is, you know, kind of reminding me of is I think in sort of the language around when they announced this act, uh, this bill, uh, they were saying that, you know, what they're trying to do is protect, you know, the minorities and the, the downtrodden uh, from being involved in like this predatory landscape and instead making sure that they were protected by the legacy financial institutions that have protected them so well up until this point. And I just thought that was such an interesting cognitive dissonance to, to like, you know, try and purport that everything that we've had works so well for poor and for, you know, the downtrodden and that these new innovations uh, are only seeking to exploit and, and to, you know, uh, uh, hurt them even more. I, I just thought that was so interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do think that um, they are very defensive on this because um, they understand that, let's call it crypto, right? Broadly, crypto is, is democratizing money. It's democratizing finance. Um, it, it really represents the best of human ingenuity, of, of cooperation, of community, of people coming together for a higher purpose. You know, it's arguably a religion, right? People say Bitcoin's a cult all the time. So um, I, and, you know, Rohan, he belongs to his own cult, right? The, the cult of the USD. And, and that's fine as well. Um, I just don't think that the state should use violence in, a, against, um, you know, belief systems, essentially, uh, which, which Bitcoin is. Um, and the other part of it is that, uh, they know uh, the the evil that gets committed by fiat. They know it, right? They know that this is what finances um, really war at, at awful scales. Um, weapons, you know, it's funny. We hear um, people on the left broadly and some people on the right as well say that, hey, there shouldn't be weapons of war in the streets of the United States. You know, there shouldn't be assault rifles in the streets, uh, in our streets. Um, meanwhile, you know, they have tanks on the streets of Fallujah. They, they know that this fiat has financed a lot of injustice in the world, and it's, it's, it's financed atrocities on both sides, really. You know, if you look at it throughout history, um, many conflicts have been financed through the issuance of more fiat, um, namely World War I and World War II. So some of the most horrific events of human history were financed by their system. And they know that. And so when they go on Twitter, they have to talk about um, in, in the most disingenuous and transparently hypocritical manner, talk about how this is good for the weak and the downtrodden, um, that, uh, that us having more power, um, you know, empowers other people. Uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It actually disempowers other people. And it can, concentrates power in centralized systems of politicians and bankers. And it's really, um, I, I, I see it as, and, and, it, and the other part that they also, I think, 
don't talk about as often as they should is how much inflation hurts the lower and middle classes. Um, the reality is that rich people, the upper classes, they, their balance sheets are not in cash. They're invested in a variety of financial assets, of cash-generating businesses, right? The equity of businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're invested in real estate, um, fine art. Um, so the wealthy have access to, to, to good investment opportunities. And that's part of what means that, you know, the wealthy get wealthier. Um, and so they actually don't care about inflation because they have access to stores of value. Uh, they don't, they don't hold cash, right? So they're not affected by that 2% inflation. And actually, um, you know, they, they're affected by other forms of inflation, but for them, as long as the value of their financial assets is doing well, uh, they, they'll be able to afford their yacht. Um, now the lower classes, they are renters. They, if you look at their balance sheet, they actually don't, um, hold any, uh, significant assets um, other than cash uh, from paycheck to paycheck. So they get their paycheck, you know, that gives them a certain cash balance. They spend it down. Then they get their next paycheck. They spend it down. Um, so uh, now while they are living paycheck to paycheck, if you look at it from kind of a weighted average perspective, they're holding a cash balance day to day, right? A, a certain weighted average cash balance. And that's their that's it. That's, that's really the only material asset they have on their balance sheet. Right. Um, they, so they're a hundred percent exposed to cash. Um, so every little bit of inflation, every little bit of cash dilution, it hurts them far more than it hurts the wealthy far more. It impairs their ability to build up those first steps of saving. Right. It's like, um, you know, any, any person accumulating wealth, it starts with cash. You know, it starts with holding money. And then eventually you're able to use that cash balance to finance an investment. And then you can, or to start your own business. And then you can really, you know, take off in terms of your net worth. But it always starts with cash. Now, obviously everyone holds cash, even wealthy people hold lots of cash. But I'm really talking about if you look at it as a percentage of your balance sheet, the less well-off you are, the bigger of a percentage of your balance sheet it is. And so inflation is a very regressive tax. Um, and it really is about uh, stealing from Peter to pay Paul, right? Uh, taking it, resources from one person to give them to another um, via the political process of allocating resources. And um, it's just really, it's quite an injustice. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, we're running up a little bit on time, but I would be remiss if we didn't, you know, kind of close out this very wide ranging, interesting conversation uh, by noting kind of uh, what could go down is maybe the, the, the tweet of the century, uh, the, definitely the tweet of the year, which was Rohan talking about uh, uh, you have to accept that running an open blockchain network means you are at some level liable for the actions that take place on that network crazy thought I know. To which he responded, uh, if you vote and pay taxes, shouldn't you be held liable for mass incarceration and the invasion of Iraq? And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to expand on that and maybe give some closing thoughts. The idea that um, anyone's participation, no matter how small, in an evil, a sin, or in an illegal um, act, no matter how small, 
you have a liability. You, so, something's attached to you. So um, if we think about no matter how small, running a Bitcoin node um, is really smaller than paying taxes, right? Because paying taxes, you're outright giving them you know, uh, resources to, to, to commit evil. Um, whereas when you're running a node, all you're doing is just verifying that they've broadcasted this transaction, right? That was transferring money to do evil. Uh, it's the difference between witnessing a crime is what happens on the Bitcoin blockchain, right? So when you're running a node and there's an illegal act- action or a, an illegal transaction on, on the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, your node is a witness to a crime. My understanding of, of Western judicial philosophy is that witnesses are not liable for the crime as a general matter, unless there's something else where they're really, um, they, maybe if they don't report the crime, um, so maybe Rohan could make an argument that if you run a Bitcoin node, you should report crimes. But I don't know how that would practically work at all. It seems like the most bizarre system ever. Uh, and uh, it's really a stretch to say that you're, you're helping very much by running a node. But nevertheless, Rohan's view is that no matter how small, no matter how small, you should be held liable. And um, the reality is that, unfortunately... So I, I really think that if we look at human history, the United States Constitution is the best legal document. It's really, it's defended liberty and property rights more than any other document in human history. However, unfortunately, humans are flawed. We're all flawed. We're all very, very, very flawed. So no matter how good our system is, if we look at the history of the United States and its relations throughout the world, there are many cases of us committing atrocities, you know, um, whether it's the My Lai massacre in, in Vietnam or Abu Ghraib, um, you know, in, in Iraq more recently. Um, you know, these, these are very real evils that were committed as part of the fiat system. They were committed by people paid in U.S. dollars, employed by the federal government, you know, which is also uh, part of the Federal Reserve. So, all of these people by Rohan's theory of, of um, extensive or infinite liability, right. Um, Of, of infinitely tangential liability as well. Um, Right. Because if you think about it, um, even if you go to an orange grove in Florida, um, you know, this tree is going to pay taxes, right? Because uh, ultimately the fruits of that tree are going to enter into commerce and they're going to pay taxes to the federal government. So, Really, even like from a vegan perspective, this means that all of the plants and animals in the United States that end up in our tax system are also guilty of of evil, right? And so it's really, I, I find it amusing that he, 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 he has such hatred towards Bitcoin that he's willing to just create a completely new uh, theory of legal liability. And it really speaks to uh, the extreme nature of modern monetary theory of saying the government should have a monopoly over money, right? That's, what, that's, that's really what their policy advice is, to make sure that the government has an absolute monopoly over money. And um, as we know that trying to reach that level of perfection, uh, you're, you've, you've got to build a totalitarian society. You've, you've really instituted something arguably worse than communism. 
right? Um, in terms of how uh, how closely it controls um, the the population, and arguably that's what China is going for. So I guess my advice to Rohan would be move to China. Okay, they're much more open to your ideas. Please move to China. <laughs> That's great. And that's a, that's a great way to kind of wrap it up. Uh, and, you know, the good news is here, we're pretty certain that this bill won't end up being law. But this does feel like kind of the first attempt at really uh, uh, reining in what shouldn't be reined in. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we've, we've just got to push in the opposite direction. We need to have them talking about our bills. What are we doing talking about their bills, right? So Absolutely. I think that we need to see um, lawmakers who have been ULE elected, like uh, Senator-elect Loomis from Wyoming or uh, Warren Davidson. You know, we need to, we need to be um, uh, helping them in every way possible and, and encouraging them to propose legislation that I think would, 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 would help um, secure American security, okay? Not to say that word twice. Um, but really, I mean, I, I see these MMT people as um, that they, they're going to screw us over, right? Currently, the federal government has a large amount of Bitcoin. Okay, what we need to do is make sure the federal government, if we care about the federal government's continued existence, which I'm assuming Rohan does, um, they should not sell that Bitcoin. But anyway, we'll talk about that another time. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, Pierre, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, as always, we can find you on Twitter. Uh, give us your handle. At Pierre underscore Richard. And we'll find you at Kraken too. Thank you so much, Pierre. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>